Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I want to talk about the Australian economy and its housing market. Now, I'm not claiming to be an analyst, but a couple of red flags seem to be appearing regarding the housing market in Australia. And a number of guests have actually contacted me and highlighted these red flags. And I've read some of the work by a previous guest on the Economic Rockstar podcast, Professor Steve Keane of Kingston University in London, who has written extensively on some of the precursors to any economic crisis that has happened predominantly as we saw in 2007 and he's also claiming that there are a number of signals that is indicating Australia to be heading toward a sim- in a similar direction. So there's a lot of talk amongst economists and analysts and commentators whether that's speculative or not that this is strike the Australian economy or its housing market will implode within the next 12 to 18 months. And Professor Steve Keane is one of those commentators and an economist who is claiming or suggesting that Australia's housing market will crash come 2017. Now, as I mentioned, a listener to the podcast who is living in Australia contacted me on what's going on there. And he's in, he and his friends are taking precautions in the event of a collapse in house prices. And I also have a couple of Irish friends who did emigrate from Ireland to Australia once the financial crisis hit here. And these young men travelled from Ireland to Australia and know with first-hand experience how an economy and housing market performs prior to a crash. Now, they're not claiming to be experts or economists, but they've been there and they've witnessed the overconfidence that exists prior to a a sudden downturn and essentially people live in a bubble and hence the bubble bursts so they like others are somewhat tuned into events that lead to a bursting of this bubble and dowsers and cynics may claim that this is an unscientific approach to analyzing the market but shouldn't we also consider non-numeric data in the form of intuition and good instinct for example you might have a an instinct or an intuition that something is not right and you might make a decision based on that, whereas some people would prefer to back it up with some hard fact and data. So even though this episode is not a scientific approach to analysing the housing market in Australia, it's just one that covers some aspects of some of the data that's available out there. And I also happen to speak to Professor Steve Keane I asked him would he come on the show for the second time and he did feature in a previous episode. It was actually episode 11 back in 2014 and I invited him along again to ask him of his viewpoints. So economic data is also available today that supports the claim that the Australian housing market is on the brink of collapse. Australia's private debt to GDP ratio is currently at 210%. This is the highest in its history, and it's probably one of the highest of all countries recorded, even prior to 2007. So such high ratios were experienced by other developed economies prior to the Great Financial Crisis, which pushed them into recession following a property market crash there. Is Australia different? Did you know that house prices plunged 30% or more in New South Wales and Victoria in the 1890s and 1930s, the biggest such reversals in Australian history. 
And that re- the result was bank collapses and mass unemployment. And the question we're asking here is, could this be repeated? Because the perception in Australia amongst many people is that Australia is different to other co- economies. It's never happened here before, but you know, history tells and history gets repeated no matter what a country or in what type of financial speculative activity that people participate in, humans at the end of the day are infallible and make mistakes and continued errors. So should we do a pre-mortem or would it be better off doing a post-mortem? And a pre-mortem is something that you consider prior to an event and make some kind of stress tests or create scenarios and protect yourself from the eventuality if it ever was to come about? Or would you prefer a post-mortem whereby you might look back and think, yeah, I should have done X, Y, and Z, or I'm glad I didn't do X, Y, and Z. So both of these, a pre-mortem and a post-mortem, can have very damaging repercussions for an individual if decision-making was wrong. And a pre-mortem forces someone to take a contrarian view of the economy. And they can then write up a checklist of possible events that could materialize and the actions that need to be taken today to assure a minimum negative impact. And unfortunately, a lot of contrarians are criticized in the media when they might express a viewpoint. And look, economists get things wrong regarding forecasts and many other people get things wrong regarding forecasts. Can a person's pre-mortem be evidence of overconfidence or can it be a deep-rooted, intuitive reading of all the vital signs that are indicating something sinister that had once played out before? After all, many economies have experienced busts and housing market crashes, and no country is immune to these events. So what precipitates a housing crisis has been explained on numerous occasions in the economic literature, albeit for different time periods, economic cycles, and dare I say, personal viewpoints and data collection methods. So should we ignore the intuition and good instinct of those in tune with the development of an economy and its participants or actors? Is Australia different to other economies? After all, Australia hasn't experienced a recession since 1991, and that's over 25 years ago. So should we ignore the or heed the warnings of the naysayers? And can intuition be considered a valid barometer to understanding how events are likely to unfold in an economy? And this episode is not necessarily based on intuition, but also, as I mentioned earlier, some statistical findings or economic data that is that could be considered as valid indicators. Now, Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, who in an interview with McKenzie and Company, considered the intuition of professionals in the decision-making process. And Kahneman stated that, and this is in quotations, there are some conditions where you have to trust your intuition. When you are under time pressure for a decision, you need to follow intuition. And my general view, though, would be that you should not take your intuitions at face value. Overconfidence is a powerful source of illusions, primarily determined by the quality and coherence of the story that you can construct not by its validity. If people can construct a simple and coherent story, they will feel confident regardless of how well grounded it is in reality. End quote. So Kahneman, who is a psychologist, looks at some of the biases that people have, and one of those biases is overconfidence. So despite the statement being considered under a different context because it was more applied to 
uh, professionals making decisions as opposed to in the economy. But they do impact a wider economy, all decisions making that is undertaken by, say, professionals and other people who are participating in financial markets. They do have an impact on the wider economy. So let's try and break this statement down that Daniel Kahneman uh, mentioned there. So Kahneman states that when you're under time pressure for a decision, you need to follow intuition. So in an economy or a housing market that is performing so well like Australia today, time doesn't play a central role for the majority of those involved in the decision-making process. Of course, well-timed investments can be the difference between a gain and a loss. Typically, in good times, people can become blindsided and focus on the positive news. The economy will continue on as it always has done. The housing market will continue performing strongly and will always be a good time to buy property. And when you're in the thick of it, the good times keep rolling. And you want to participate in a market whose assets are experiencing capital appreciation. And the majority of people make decisions based on past performance. The housing market in Australia has grown to unprecedented yet worrying levels. So any negative news or commentary is largely dismissed and the bearers of the bad news are typically criticized and vilified. And humans have the ability to forget their past failings and fallibilities and repeatedly make the same mistakes over and over again. And economic history shows us the misconceptions and judgmental errors made by humans from tulip mania to the South Sea bubble and the dot-com crash. So if the housing market was to implode in Australia, time would become the main focus as people will rush to the exits. Housing is not as liquid as stocks or cash and a housing crash will be the ultimate result. Participants in the Australian housing market are accumulating dangerous levels of private debt never seen before in its history. And according to Professor Steve Keane of Kingston University, private household debt now stands at 210% of GDP. And this is an unhealthy level for an economy to be in. And again, highlighted by Professor Steve Keane in his blog, DebtWatch.com and his book, Debunking Economics. And Steve warned of the risks to many economies and their housing market prior to the great financial crisis. And he also warned about Australia's economy at the time. But Australia avoided a recession, which is technically speaking, two negative quarters of GDP growth. And they only experienced one along with South Korea. So policy initiatives at the time, as well as the availability of credit, maybe rising commodity prices of which Australia benefits from, also perhaps a demand for housing stock from mainland China, and an appetite for risk to avail of the speculative gains being made in this accelerating property market. So all of this has resulted in Australia being different to other economies. So with Australia being able to avoid the recession that other economies have experienced over the last number of years, Australia is considered the darling economy and a perceived role model on how to maintain economic growth. So these positives led to immigration rising as the demand for employment increased. And as we know, when jobs are created, income levels rise, feeding demand for goods and services. So eventually confidence rises and speculative purchases are made. And when the desired expectations to these speculative purchases come to fruition, then people become overconfident. And as the statement earlier on that I mentioned about that Daniel Kahneman read out in the interview, he stated that overconfidence is a powerful source of illusions, 
primarily determined by the quality and coherence of the story that you can construct, not by its validity. If people can construct a simple and coherent story, they will feel confident regardless of how well grounded it is in reality. So it's essentially what Kahneman is saying here and that we can apply to the situation in any economy where there's speculative gains and asset purchases, we could be living in a bubble. So is the Australian housing market a bubble? Are people too confident or overly confident in the purchases that they're making and the expectation that they're going to gain higher returns above and beyond what they're actually paying for a property at the moment? So this type of illusion is a false reality. And unfortunately, you have economists. And when I say unfortunately, I don't want to come across as being biased here. But a... The Royal Bank of Australian economist Peter Tulip last year suggested that Australian Australian housing could be as much as 30% undervalued. Now, this type of commentary is not helpful in a market that is already overheating. And when participants or would-be buyers are excited about capital appreciation, despite being negatively geared, this type of statement by Peter Tulip is definitely not and should not be encouraged or welcomed. And... It could also be seen as a new take on tulip mania. So the same economist in 2007, actually, in a working paper for the OECD, wrote about how safe Iceland's economy was and that its banking system was secure and stable and that its housing market should be liberalised and opened up to competition. Today, there are reports of people being able to borrow 10 times their pre-tax income to purchase a property. And this is definitely not a healthy situation for anyone to be in, including banks who are lending out these. So what could be the catalyst to, to housing market crash in Australia? Australia has an active subprime mortgage market. Interest rates are also currently low at 2%, yet they could go lower as we have seen elsewhere. Perhaps the Royal Bank of Australia are keeping a 2% cushion in the event of implementing a loose monetary policy in the event of a crash. So unfortunately, this type of stimulus will not work as households will be required. If a crash happens, they'll be required to pay down their debt and the economy could enter into a Japanese-style era of stagflation. And that's the worry with Australia at the moment, the way things are going. Australia is also heavily dependent on its commodities, hence the dollar being known as a commodity currency. And there is continuing drop in resource prices worldwide, and that's affecting Australia. And also commodity-dependent companies such as Rio and BHP are in trouble. So banking shares have also dropped, and they could be seen as ominous of what's to come. So are there people in the know? Why are these banking shares falling? Are they liquidating their holdings? And just do your own analysis. Check out what happened to many of the leading US and European banking shares prior to October 2008, which was the official start date of the the great financial crisis. They were already on the downward trajectory. Could a slowdown in China affect the Australian economy? So the Chinese have also accumulated high levels of private debt within China, and their private debt to GDP ratio is quite high, similar to Australia's. And... There are capital flows, I'm not 100% on this, but there are capital flows from China to Australia and some investments that is taking place also in the property market by Chinese, although the Australians are driving these property prices to go even further. So if the Chinese investment in the Australian property market stops, then that could be almost a catalyst or a trigger.
Also, there is an overwhelming supply of apartments in cities like Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney. And many of these apartments lie vacant and buyers are expecting their negatively geared position to be offset by further capital appreciation. And there's a story of immigrants. They've also proven to be very mobile. Hence, they're moving from one country to another. And when signs of a weakening economy materialize, they'll be one of the first to actually emigrate, leaving a slump in rental demand. And owners of these rental properties, they'll end up failing to meet their own repayments as the rent is their main source of income in order to make repayments on the, the property that they've invested in. So put simply, in the words of Professor Steve Keen when I play the interview soon, Australia's housing market is a Ponzi scheme. And those that got in first will be the winners, while all those who got in over the last few years are going to suffer. So again, as I mentioned earlier on, I'm not claiming to be a, an expert on the Australian economy or a commentator or an analyst. Hence, I asked Professor Steve Keane to come back and join me again for a very short interview, approximately 18, 19 minutes. And we again explore and discuss what's going on and what his viewpoints are based on the research that he's doing. So you can check out the show notes at economicrockstar.com forward slash Australia. If you have any suggestions, feedback or comments to make on this episode, why not visit economicrockstar.com, find the show notes to this episode and I'd love you to join in the conversation and discussion. And even if you have any other statistics or diagrams that you might think would be quite uh, interesting for myself or other listeners or readers to view, why not share them? You can also go to Facebook and check me out at Economic Rockstar also. So enjoy this brief interview with Professor Steve Keane, Head of Department of Economics, History and Politics at Kingston University in London and author of the must-read Debunking Economics. What I'd love to do is follow on from our conversation okay. that we've had a while back because I, ha- I had to reread your Debunking Economics. Wow. And I actually understand it a lot more. We were talking about private equity or sorry, private debt to GDP ratios at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And naive, I was getting it confused with debt to GDP ratios. So uh, you, you clarified that when we read, reread the book, and things really come into place, especially with the writing and the commentary you're doing at the moment on the mm-hmm. Australian economy. Oh yeah, and just even the graph, and I'll put a link up the graph on the, the show notes again. But seeing that graph, a uh, private debt to GDP ratio in Australia mm-hmm. hitting approximately or hitting two hundred percent. Is quite phenomenal. Yeah, close to 110% now, I'd say. I'm looking forward to the next set of data. And we, we've experienced in Australia, when I say we, Australia have experienced a peak back and uh, at the beginning of the great financial crisis, along with other developed economies, mm-hmm. saw a bit of a dip, not as extensive as other economies like the United States, and came powering back up, accelerating. Yeah, yeah. And it's the whole the whole way they managed to evade it. Australia was one of two countries in the OECD that didn't record a recession in 2008. And the reason was, just like the other country, it borrowed its way out back to prosperity again. So um, and that's, that's when, I, when I do the graph of America versus Australia, it's bleedingly obvious that America had a debt crisis and delivered. And we had a debt crisis and kept right on borrowing. And of course, what that means ultimately is that the scale of the, of the debt level you're at when you have a turnaround is bigger than it was 
uh, when the crisis first hits here, we'll have a bigger downturn. So I think Australia, that's why I've called a recession in Australia. I think it's inevitable it's going to face one. I, I put a date of 2017 on it as, as a sort of um, time stamp, but I, it could happen any time in the next two or three years because there's still potential for the Australian government, particularly the, the, Re, the Reserve Bank, to encourage people to continue borrowing by dropping the rates. But uh, ultimately, they'll, they'll be unable to continue doing that. And when they stop being able to, people will, the debt will plateau. When it does, that's the, all the credit-based demand from the economy disappears and they'll have a recession. I don't know whether you, Australia is unique, obviously unique compared to other economies, but it's because it has a commodity or it's a commodity currency or it's closely linked to China as a high dependency on that type of trade with the Chinese economy. It's partly that. I mean, Canada's got a similar profile to us. When I identify the countries that are going to face a debt crisis, on, just on my basic parameters, the, the rate, ratio of private debt to GDP and then its rate of change. And it's just, because there were so many countries that had a level of private debt exceeding 1.5 times GDP, I just stuck with 1.75 times to have a sort of a higher bar and then looked at countries that had a 10% or greater increase in private debt compared to GDP in one year last year. And therefore, when, when, the, when the rate of growth of, debt, growth of debt is that high, when it stops, the, its absence is an enormous deduction from demand. And Canada and Australia turned up as two of the countries that are going to have that, and Norway. Okay. So that's three out of seven countries were uh, resource exporting developed countries. Economists tend not to consider private debt. Mm. And it's just aggregate demand is your GDP your yeah. levels of income, but you claim that we need to add on the, the change or the rate of change of this private debt as well, because with this level of private debt that's increasing or moving at a vast pace, it overextends the economy. Yeah, well, it, it, people are recalling me these days as a modern monetarist as opposed to a modern monetary theorist, and I think I can actually wear that tape label fairly uh, happily because... What I'm arguing is that we've had an, a non-monetary analysis of capitalism dominating how we think about it, which is neoclassical economics, which is why I completely missed the financial crisis and why it gives very bad advice about not considering credit. But you still have to work out a way of saying, how is it possible for change in debt to play a role when aggregate expenditure is identical to aggregate income? Your spending becomes somebody else's income, that type of argument. So my way of answering that was to build mathematically build a table of expenditures on one side and income on the other and show that they're necessarily identical, but then show expenditure has two sources. It's the turnover of existing money. So if we didn't actually borrow any more money, we'd still be turning over the money we currently have. And that effectively is recorded by GDP. Poorly, but it's still GDP is a good proxy for that value. Change in debt we record much more accurately as it happens. And then when you have change in debt, if you take the total expenditure, therefore going to be the sum of the turnover of existing money plus the change in debt. And what you've got effectively like a wall of money moving forward at that time, which is your source of demand in the economy. And that, that means that expenditure is financed out of existing money plus change in debt, and income is generated the same way. Still identical to each other, but change in debt plays a vital role. And then the importance of bringing that in, one of many reasons why it's important, is that changes in velocity of circulation of money, changes in output are fairly relatively slow and you don't ever get them going negative. Change in debt can vary quite dramatically and you, go, you can get it going negative. And that's why a crisis occurs 
when you have a high level of debt to GDP, so the change in debt is a major contribution to total demand and therefore also total income. And then when it when it reaches a peak, as it's doing now in, in those seven countries identified recently in my Forbes blog, when, that's, when that rate of growth slows down, that alone is enough to trigger a crisis. So you don't even need the level of debt to fall. You need its rate of growth to go from 15%, 20% of GDP to zero, and then that component of demand just disappears. And who's going to be affected by this then? Oh, everybody. It, it, it hits asset markets first because, again, one thing, when you have a monetary view of capitalism, you have to say what is money primarily used for. We, we borrow money into existence by borrowing from the banks. And when we do that, most of that money these days, something like 95% of it, is borrowed to buy assets, particularly housing. So consequently, you, you, you don't simply have the argument that aggregate expenditure is equal to aggregate income. I think it has the aggregate expenditure is equal to income plus realised capital gains. So the capital gains we make out of selling, selling the, the increase in the value of housing is driven by a positive change in debt, but equally a decline in the value of housing can be driven by a negative change in debt. And that's that'll be first felt in the asset markets, then it affects the entire economy because in the case of countries which are, you know, have a debt level of 1.75 times GDP and where that's growing at 10% or more per annum, something of 10% of GDP per annum, something of the close to 10 to 15% of demand can just disappear when that rate of growth disappear, also goes away. Yeah, I have some friends that emigrated from Ireland mainly because of the recession, the great financial crisis that we've had here. And many went to Australia. Yep. Typically, and decades ago, would have been America, but they favoured Australia this time around. And they've seen the benefits, but they're now see the same mistakes occurring. They feel It feels like Ireland all over again to them. It is. It is. They see the yep. negative gearing. Yeah, with the added bonus of Chinese buying um, on top of what happened in Ireland. Of course, you're all getting rich selling second-hand houses to each other. Yeah. We're getting rich selling some second-hand houses to the Chinese, which has got slightly more legs than the internal Irish boom had. Like there, there's negative gearing. There's the tax incentives. Yep. There's the um, the borrowing from a country like Germany that's running a surplus. Uh-huh. Everything is there. The confidence, the overconfidence, the yep. the, the buying off uh, plans, leaving vacant premises because you're going expecting the capital appreciation to come about yeah. in the near future to pay off the the negative gearing that you're that you're experiencing right now, uh-huh. and. They're being cautious. I don't know whether they they have a sense that the same is happening again or it's going to be different because it's Australia that haven't experienced a recession in 25 years, even though there might be some degree of instability regarding the, the frequent changes of government. I think the government are playing along with this as well, politically. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the reason that Australia hasn't had a crisis for 25 years is we've had one of the fastest rates of growth of debt in that 25-year period. And that extra leverage added to demand all the way through has kept the economy booming. Whenever there's been a a near downturn, government policy hasn't necessarily consciously done this because they don't think they understand what's going on. But they've encouraged Australians back into borrowing again. So when you had the, um, like my favourite instance of that is actually back in 2000, 2001, because we had uh, the Howard government campaigned on the basis of bringing in a goods and services taxing, a VAT, GST as they called it in Australia. And as part of the mechanism to enable the society to go to the shock of bringing in the GST, Howard introduced what he called the First Home Owners Grant mm. to help the building industry not fall backwards for lack of demand at the time because of bringing in GST. It's supposed to last six months. 
then the uh, the economic uh, the, the the financial crunch hit Nasdaq when the Nasdaq index collapsed. I think that was in early 2000 or April 2000. Actually, I was actually there at the time in New York on the very day. I was very pleased about that. I think it was April 2000, may have been later. Uh, but as in response to that giving a, a fear of a crisis, Howard doubled the first-time owner's grant, which set off another bubble in housing. And, of course, the borrowed money spent into the economy, I mean, our economy rather than slumping due to the GST actually boomed. And that temporary measure, that's supposed to last six months to get us over the impact of the GST, wasn't removed until 2012. <laughs> I think Ireland did the same thing as well. Yep, yep, yep. We simply don't learn, and even if we learn, we forget. I mean, the whole, uh, the, the, the farce of seeing neoclassical economists talk about people with rational expectations, yeah. which it talks about a capacity to, to foresee the future accurately on the basis of a sensible economic model. People's actual behaviour is so backward-looking and, and so capable of forgetting the experiences they've had, and you're doing the same thing in Ireland right now, uh, with your, your recovery being driven largely by a credit bubble starting off yet again. It's incredible, our capacity not to learn from the past. You're talking about Ireland there again. Property prices, they've hit lows. There's, we have one of the fastest growth rates in property prices, and our own GDP is growing extremely well at approximately mm. 7 7.5% per annum. And it's credit again. Yeah, it's incredible, and it's, it's the credit that's available. You know, people feel this speculative activity occurring again. They want to get in. If there's any way of being able to borrow, they'll, they'll get in there. The foreign buyers have all kind of come and gone. And now it's opening up to Irish buyers again at these higher prices. Yeah, yeah. It's we've got to get away, and this this is why I'm, I'm giving up on. I mean, when you look at what happens in in the way we handle credit money, it's almost clear that our societies don't have the intelligence to understand what's going on there because we repeat the same mistakes. And in Ireland's case, you're doing it less than ten years after the previous crisis, which is phenomenal. You know. To, I once had a, I gave a presentation on my Minsky model to my new university back in 96 when I started at the University of Western Sydney. One of my very nice mates out there, a very conventional thinking economist, said to me on the way out of the seminar that, Steve, the difference between you and me is I believe people learn from their mistakes. And I replied, yes, Andrew, the other difference is I believe people, I believe people forget and die. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just, even having said that, I'm still stunned how quickly people forget the experiences they themselves have been through. It doesn't necessarily take a new generation coming along. The old one can forget in time and go back and do the same damn stupid things again less than a decade later. What Australia is experiencing is essentially a Ponzi scheme. And with an election coming up this year, it's an election you don't want to win. Yeah, I, I finished my articles precisely that way. I said that given the fact that uh, the odds are that the, the momentum of the last 25 years of borrowing is finally reaching its maximum level, as it approaches that level and the rate of growth of debt slows down, that's enough to cause a crisis without even needing to have it deliver like the Americans did and like you guys did briefly. Um, so when it hits, whoever's in control is going to get blamed for it, but it's really the previous two and a half decades of policy which has unconsciously to some extent encouraged us into more and more debt, fueled extra demand from that private debt, uh, that's what actually will cause the crisis. But the person who wins the election will be blamed for it. So it'd be a good one for the Labour Party to lose. But given the incompetence of the Liberal Party, then the uh, Liberals may well lose the election and Labour will then win and get blamed for the downturn, which the previous Labour and Liberal governments, going right back to Keating, actually set in train. And it's, it's again, 
reminiscent of other economies again. I don't want to say Ireland, but it, it, it happens. The previous government gets blamed once they get in there, even though we had a consecutive a government mm-hmm. that ran consecutive terms and throughout that. But mm-hmm. it just brings me back full circle to our the beginning of yeah. our conversation about stability is destabilizing. That's exactly what happened in Australia. The 25 years trying to write out uh, threats yeah. of recession, creating that stability and the economy is setting up, setting itself up for a tremendous failure. By delaying, the longer we manage to avoid a crisis, the only way you do that is by continuing to expand demand. And the way we've expanded the demand is partly through our exports, but mainly through our borrowing. So when you get to the stage where you stop that borrowing, then the, the scale of the downturn is that much bigger. I've done a little calculator, which actually Zero Hedge did a rather nice job of of making it into a web application of people to type in the numbers and see what happens when you have an economy growing at a certain rate, debt growing much faster, as is the case during a boom. And then when debt slows down simply to the rate of growth of the economy itself and the scale of the impact that has on demand can actually turn the change in demand from one year to the next to be negative. And uh, the longer you delay it, the more likely it is to happen because of the higher the ratio of private debt to GDP is going to be. Are Australians ignorant of the fact that it's going to happen to them? Oh, sure. And I, I sound almost 100% positive, but it, more than likely it will happen. We have the subprime mortgages. Yeah. We have banks. Bank shares are selling and haven't recovered since the beginning mm. of or mid-2015. Yeah. Yeah, they're not aware of it. I mean, some Australians are, and they're, they're as frustrated as I am by watching us sort of march towards the, the, the cliff edge. But in general, there's, a, there's the old classic Australian expression, she'll be right, mate that belief that we'll get through it because we're Australia uh, is still there. And the one thing which might keep that going for longer is the fact that, uh, as you said, it's a Ponzi scheme selling second-hand houses to each other, but we're also selling them to the Chinese, as I said earlier, and uh, that foreign demand can continue going for some some time and provide, as long as that demand is there, provide a fillip for the economy itself. So uh, they can get away with it for a bit longer, but I really think... You, you could never survive just on that external demand. If your internal demand collapses, as it will do when Australians stop borrowing, then you have to have a downturn. And then it's a question of what do the Chinese do at that time? You know, do they take that as a buying opportunity or do they, do they get out of themselves? And there's no, or is there any textbook solution or what someone, if someone was listening to this episode hmm. and the alarm bells came on, is there anything that they, they could do to be somewhat cautious and protect whatever assets or cash they might have? Nothing textbook. I mean, again, again, if you have a, a problem like that, the best thing to do is get out of volatile asset markets. So, uh, but, I mean, the, the way the Australian stock market has been falling over for some time, people are liquidating out of their position in the stock market. But liquidating out of the housing market is much harder. So, um, I, you know, if, if, if people are in there expecting only capital gains, and they're then exposed to losses in their in their running costs, and the demand disappears out of the market, then they'll cop it. And you know, I'm, <laughs> I certainly can't express any sympathy for them if they fall that way. But the government almost has something to be somewhat take blame because they're offering kind of tax incentives in order to claim back any losses on their properties. Yeah, the government's totally complicit in this. I mean, the governments, the state governments, get their revenue out of a sales tax that gives them a encouragement to water property bubble. The federal government halved the rate of capital gains tax to half the level of income tax, so it encouraged you to gamble and speculate rather than work. Then we have the negative gearing as well, so you can write off your losses 
and your and your from your property income in a way you can't write up losses from other income against all your income rather than just the income from that particular area. Uh, and the first-time owner scheme, which I call what's called the first-time vendor schemes, they've all been designed to inflate the market, and they all believe that rising house prices are a good thing. I often said, is a rising price of carrots a good thing? You know, we all, should we all celebrate when we find carrots are more expensive? But no, it's just housing that they do it with, and it's because it's caught up in this Ponzi scheme. On that note, by the way, I've done some work recently with a colleague, Paul Onrod, looking at the whether you can work out a causal relationship between uh, debt and house prices, and I've been arguing for some time that it's acceleration of private debt, mortgage debt, that drives rising house prices. But I've now confirmed that econometrically with a very conservative test. So um, that basically says my case. When you've got house, house prices rising faster than consumer prices for some sustained period, it's driven by accelerating, not just rising, but accelerating mortgage debt compared to GDP. And that is something which cannot be sustained forever. So it comes back to the only way to tame these things ultimately is to tame the financial sector and not let the, the financial sector decide how much debt to load you up with for house purchases, to set up some system that stops that. And that could be done by what I, what I call the pill, property income limited leverage. But again, it takes political will to do that. And I don't think that will is going to be there until the whole global economy is caught in, in, in a... In a a sort of turning Japanese stagnationist debt trap, and that's where Australia will shortly find itself joining the party. So I hope people get to pick up your book, Debunking Economics, Steve, because it's quite a good detail there. And read that Forbes article, I'm sure, that you've written. Again, I'll put the link on to the show notes page. But seriously, for those people who are in Australia, it could easily be a Ponzi scheme, this housing crisis, and you're not immune to any housing crash, unlike the rest of us. <laughs> okay, Steve, thanks very much for taking the time out. Okay, I'll get back to my lectures, mate, so good to chat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve, thanks very much, and great to hear from you again. Okay. All the best. Thank you, bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. Yeah, I, I finished one of my articles precisely that way. I said that given the fact that uh, the odds are that the, the momentum of the last 25 years of borrowing is finally reaching its maximum level. As it approaches that level and the rate of growth, the debt slows down. That's enough to cause a crisis without even needing to have it do like the Americans did and like you guys did briefly.